On today's podcast, we have the most decorated tournament tarpon guide of all time, Rob Fordyce. Over four decades, he's finished in the top three 58 times. Fordyce was born to chase greatness. At 5 a.m., you can find him pushing iron in the gym, and at 5 p.m., he's pushing his boat. If you've ever heard of Tarpon, most likely you've heard of this man. Rob and I did battle for 17 years in the tournament scene, and during that time, there was no one I respected or feared more as a guide. Today, we welcome a modern-day legend. We hope you enjoy. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. We're ready whenever you, you ready guys to are. release that arrow? Yes, sir. Are you ready to fling one, Robbie? I am. Let's go. Let's get it done. <laughs> Robbie Fordyce. I mean, you are a a big legend for a long time. Uh, if you take a look at what you've done in the fishing world, it's quite extraordinary. You've had great mentors. You've hosted. You've had your own number three TV shows. I think it is that you've that you've owned and hosted. But I think your tournament record speaks incredible volumes. You've been in the top three in all the tournaments 57 times. Yeah. You've won all three, women's two. Um, Runner-up in the Gold Cup 11 times. Oh, my don't, God. Don't remind me. No wonder you're bald. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's uh, it's my holy grail, I guess. You know. Well, it's, at least you got I, one win. I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get another one. You got to get one with him. I'd love that. <laughs> <laughs> I must say, um, I mean, obviously we competed against each other all these years and uh, it really did my heart great. Uh, I had gotten out of the game. You invited me to fish the Golden Fly and we ended up winning. Yeah. And in that awards banquet, I, 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 I couldn't stop crying because in a lifetime of what you are very passionate about in competition, there are only so many years that you can win. Right. And that was, I knew that was going to be my last, that was my last win because uh, at my age and knowing that I was kind of out of the game, that I was cherishing that moment so much to fish it with you because we always speculated how well we could do fishing together. And you invited me back right. onto a bow and I'd been out of the game for five years and right. we ended up winning. And then you said, now we got to defend us. And no, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I must say, you know, and then you invited Nikki to fish the holly. You guys finished third. So, you know, I just want to thank you on behalf of Nikki and I for your generosity. No, uh, you know what? There's no better bow to be on than yours. Well, I appreciate you know, your that. track record that, shows that, that. That means a lot coming from you. I've enjoyed the time we've spent together. I wish I wish I had more free time and you had more free time to do it more. Right. Just for fun, you know, forget the tournament stuff, right. just just to go fishing, but everybody's busy. Yeah, for and, sure. And and those are not the last days we'll fish. We'll fish some more. Yeah, for sure. And and when I had my show Sportsman's Journal, yeah. we did a couple of shows together. I remember it was fun. Yeah. Um What is this how do you feel about your legacy and your and your success? You, you know, honestly, every, you know, when people talk about me that way, it, it feels it feels funny to me because I know I've accomplished a lot of things, but I've never been satisfied with what I've done. And I think that's the driving force behind the things that I have accomplished is I'm still not satisfied with I got really, you know, most people in my position would say they have nothing to prove. Probably, probably would quit fishing sure. tournaments and just go out with their good clients and, and have enjoyable times. But I don't, especially when it comes to tarpon, I love to fish for everything, sailfish, bonefish, snook, redfish, but there's tarpon to me and, you know, and everything else. And uh, when it comes to tarpon fishing, whether it's a tournament or not, every day I leave the dock, I practice like I play. Right. And I think that has led to 57 top three finishes in a tarpon tournament because when a tournament comes, I don't do anything different than I do every day I'm fishing. Right. I just have a good angler on the bow. We're a team, and I get even more focused than I do on a, on a regular day. Right. But, but when I go tarpon fishing, it's, um, it's always a competition to me. So those tournaments still mean the world to you. It has not gone downhill at all. You no, still no. You know, I, there, I, early in my career, uh, I want to say year five or thereabouts of guiding, I, I won the Holly my first year of guiding, won the Gold Cup the next year and the ladies the following year. And at that time, that was the only three tarpon tournaments. The, the Golden Fly didn't exist in uh I was the only guy that ever had ever done that at that time. But I was so, I mean, I was sick to my stomach every day of fishing in the tournaments. I would put so much pressure on myself and, and I was, I was a young guide. So I, I wasn't, I, I would say I, I was an orchestra leader, but I was a little more harsh. You know, I was a little more high strung as a young guy would be. And, and it became, where I didn't like what was happening between my anglers and myself during tournaments because I was putting pressure on myself and them. So I took a couple years off and then I started fishing some guys that were coming along, but I missed it so much. I missed the competition. I didn't realize how much I would, my whole life I've been competitive. I, I grew up playing football and baseball. My dad coached me, my dad pushed me. You know, at some points in my in my youth, I thought my dad pushed me too hard. N looking back now, I know he did not. Right. He pushed me to where I needed to be. Right. And proved and, and taught me to never take. You know anything for granted. 
And I think he's the one that early in my life instilled never be satisfied with where you're at, even though he was proud as hell of, of me. And I accomplished a lot of things in sports at a young age, not just fishing, but baseball and football. I've just, I've always set these goals and I'm always trying to, trying to reach and I'm always resetting them. It's kind of weird that you reset a goal you, never, you know you're never going to reach because you always reset it. Do you, is that exhausting after all these years? I mean, you've been tournament fishing for it, 32 years. I would think at some point you just want to go fishing. It, it is. A, as I did. Yes. It is exhausting. But at the same time, I love it. What I, uh, can't, I can't imagine a tarpon season now because the day the Gold Cup's over, the day the Gold Cup is over, I'm tying new flies and trying new hooks and trying different shock tippet and new techniques for next year's tournaments, no, which that. are 11 and a half months away. I get that. And every year has been that way my whole career. So every day I'm fishing with a client, whether we're, it's one of my tournament guys or just one of my regular regulars that comes during tarpon season, I'm tournament fishing. You're right. I don't no. go out there to have fun. We have fun. We cut up. You know, you guys have fished with me. I'm not, sure. I'm not balls to the wall, but, right. but I take it serious. And, and I think that, that some guys that fish the tournaments try when it, when it counts and only when it counts, they give it a hundred percent. Right. And I think that that changes changes things a little bit when you give it 100% all the time. When it, when it does really count, it's just another day. Did you see a gear change possibly in your fishing and your desire to win when like Dustin Huff came into the, the game and started yeah. winning? You know, I mean, Dustin um, obviously came into the game with Thane and, you know, Forced it, to be reckoned with. Did you have to absolutely. pick up your game because of that? It made me focus even more. It's like a driving force. Right. That's the way I looked at it. I didn't look at them like a threat. I looked at them more like, okay, let's take this up a notch. So how did you take that up a notch? Same the same things I've always done, just a, just one step further. Which was? More intensity. Are you, so yeah, that brings up a question. How often are you making improvements on like your knots, your hooks, your flies? Mm. Is it is it pretty? Have you reached the bar, or is there always improvements being made the, on the day in the water? That's a great question. And what improvements are those? Um, the one thing that's changed in the game from when I started thirty three years ago. One of the things that's that's changed are hooks. In the old days, we had like two styles of hooks to, to pick from and they were horrible for hooking fish so you had to take a file and you had to do a lot of work to the hook to even think about getting it stuck in a tarpon's face with a fly rod hooks have evolved and hooks keep evolving so every year i look at every hook made and i pick a new hook i still have my two or three hooks that i've used the last five or six years but i pick a new hook that hook looks like it might work and in March, February and March, I start tying flies on that hook. That's just one example. Same with fluorocarbon. The same with fly lines. Some fly line tapers hit the water softer on calm conditions than others. Throughout the year, I'm trying all these things when I'm not in a tournament situation. I'm just fishing to see how they work. 
And I think it'd be easy to be lazy and just do what I do, what, what works every day. Right. But I'm not learning anything. These fish are getting smarter. 25 years ago when I was fishing worm flies this big and everybody else was still throwing 3-0 and 4-0 flies, just like the guys that started the game were throwing, because most of, most of the guys that were still doing it were the guys that started the game. They hadn't cha- made that change yet, nor had anybody else. It was easy. So 25 years ago, you were throwing Palola worms. Throwing number one hooks with flies you can't see. No shit. And you'd have 25, 30, 30 bite days. Then I figured out how to, how to strip them. <coughs> Long before this two hand and all this other crap that everybody's doing now, jerking know. the gerbil. Yes, which is hard to do. That's a, that's another thing that's you know really hard. It's funny when you have a tarpon coming up to eat that worm fly and you miss one little one little two inch strip. Well, the you, thing, lo- you lose the animal. What there's two there's two parts to that strip though. You're stripping it. You know your your hands moving like that. You miss it. You wiggle your rod tip. As soon as you know you miss, but you wiggle let, your rod tip. But let me ask you, at 60 feet or 50 feet, you move that rod tip. Is that affecting that fly? Absolutely. You're not wiggling it like this. You're not wiggling it. Right, you're so moving you're, it. You're wiggling it. You're, you're shaking, shaking it. Big time. You're shaking it. Yeah. Violently. Until you, you can regain. Because I always said that to my dad, because everyone, everyone compliments my dad back in the day in the Jamie Howard films, you know, when he was fishing the toad, he would wiggle that rod tip. And this was like two years ago, and I was watching some footage, and I was thinking, you know what, Dad? That was just for show. That wasn't doing anything to the to right. fly because he was just doing this. Right. No, oh, no, right. no, no, no. I had my left no, hand slide. No, 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 <laughs> that no. That toad would wiggle like this. No, it wasn't. It was screaming, "Heepy!" All for show. <laughs> nope. <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, it, it was fun in those days because I, I think that I, I don't care about getting credit for things. I, I know what what you did what i did and that's one of the things i did was i i all these guys these newer guides that have come along the last 15 years that have all of a sudden discovered this game me and a couple other guys set the foundation for that right for sure you know what about scott collins and and uh dave delu and dave delu I mean, they were doing double hand stripping, winning they, the gold cup. I mean, they, that was like cutting edge, they, wasn't it? They were, were you doing that at the time? No, they were the first. I was using small flies way before that. But you weren't double. But I was slide worms. I was not double handing. No, it was because um, with they Timmy, were the first known worm tur- guys tournament anglers. Not they weren't the first worm guys. But double hand stripping, they the were the first in the alley. They were definitely the first guys doing the two hand. Yeah. I remember when I first, one year I got to, with Timmy Hoover in the Laura Keys, I started thinking too, there's a lot of big fish in that clear water. And I was thinking, how can I get that fly to the fish without him seeing how that fly got there? That's the whole key to tarpon fishing. It is. And I, it, so I started tying these little flies on one hooks, and I didn't know that you were doing that. And Timmy asked me, he said, what are we, what are we going to do with this little one hook trout fish? I said, no, I think, I think this is going to work. And and we hadn't tried it yet, but I had these toads tied on little one o flies, and we started catching these monster fish. Yeah, that, that smaller hook hooks the fish better, it does. penetrates They're like sticky. a hyperthermic, uh, hyperthermic needle. Yep. And uh, sure, some of them, the original hooks were pretty good. The Aki's used to break a little bit right behind the barb. Yeah. And the SL, 
the SC gamma guys used to bend open because yep. the wire was too thin. Right. But that was our learning curve, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to catch these these big fish that were laid up in clear water. Right. It's just but don't so you, fun. But don't you think that is the key to successful tarpon fishing? Allow that fly to get to the fish without him knowing how it got the there. The whole key is it's, it's, it, what I'm going to say is basically the same thing as you're saying. You have to get the fly in his area of awareness without him knowing how it got there. And when he sees it, it's got to be trying to leave. Right. All right, those, right, right. All those For combinations sure. have to happen. And it doesn't matter whether it's a laid up fish or a fish in the backcountry or an ocean string of 40 fish coming down the ocean. It's the same thing. It has to end up in his area of awareness without him knowing how it got there and it's got to be leaving. And when you're throwing out a string of 40, you try to do that to 10 fish in that string of 40. For sure. You know, and what you're one of them, if you do it right, it's going to eat. Right. I don't know what a string of 40 looks like fishing with my father. <laughs> <laughs> or when he's in the back of the boat. I haven't seen that string with you either, cupcake. I, you know, I think that's, that's very cool that you guys, your life has evolved around his passion. Sure. And you follow kind of in his footsteps. Sure. I don't mean, mean that in, in a negative way at all. I think it's fun that you share your passions together. Oh, absolutely. You know, you bow hunt. And, you, oh. and, and I have the same with my kids. The hunting side and the fishing side, even more with my daughter than my son. You know, Kay, she's more in. She's she more is. In. She'd rather bow hunt for anything than than wake up in the morning and if she had one thing to do, that'd be it. Well, I, to tell you the truth, if I had one thing left to do in my life, it'd be bugle in a big fat bull elk and stick it with a sharp stick. I get that. What about you, Rob? My last day was tomorrow. I'd have to catch a tarpon on the ocean. What about bonefish? I love bone fishing. The tarpon when the tarpon is your, your animal. I love the bonefish when the tarpon aren't around. Love Where, the one you're with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where does archery deer hunting come in there? In order, I would have to say fly tarpon. About that far below would be archery deer hunting. Especially on foot where you rattle them up and it's just like bugling an elk. Right. You know, I mean, they run you over. Vocally. It's communicating. Vocalizing. You're communicating, and and when you're rattling, you can almost predict if you understand how deer come to that. Because there is a trick to it. You don't just hit horns and deer come from every direction. You can make them come from the right direction with the right terrain and the wind direction. And you can set that whole whole scenario up where you're going to have a shooting lane right here. And when that all comes together the way you thought it was going to, it's pretty rewarding. Yeah. No, it, it's what's really great about these animals. We are convincing a, a mammal to come to us, right? Just like get tarpon a tarpon to, into eating a fly. But we are, we are, we, but we are, but we're not getting the fish to come to us. That's right. Vocalizing. That's right. We get them to eat it. Right. We can communicate through these feathers. Yeah. But we're pulling animals with yes. what we do. That's right. And say, let's go back to. You know, you you won the last Gold Cup that was a kill tournament. Yes, nineteen ninety one. Yeah, long damn time ago. Stanley Stanley Sherman. Yep. the The game changed after that because it was catch and release. But tell me about the story about a weight fish that you caught with Stanley that he didn't think it was a weight fish, which I I've always loved the story. I loved it too. It's uh. First, let me say this. I'm I'm glad that, that all the tournaments are released now and, and that we get, but I am so 
thankful that I got to participate at a time and experience that. And why? There, there is, there is nothing in fishing for a guide aspect that is more adrenaline based than the first time a fish swims by the boat, you know, 140 pound fish or whatever he is within range, regardless of whether he's been on 30 seconds or 30 minutes. And you, you feel that when you stick that fish, it's, there's a, a relationship there that no other thing, maybe, maybe gaff and a Marlin would be close second. But most of the time, then you're using flying gaffs. These, you know, right. this is a straight gaff. You're connected with him. It's your hands and this pole and this hook and that badass fish on the other end. First morning of the Gold Cup, 1991, slick calm. Stanley and I, those days we left from Papa Joe's. Shotgun start, 25 boats, boom, go blazing off every direction. I go to Sandy Key Basin. Only boat in there. Slick calm, I could see forever. Start pulling. I'm pulling maybe a two, three minutes. I see a little string of fish tipping 100 yards away. I ease him up there. They start chaining right before I get to get there. And he makes a cast, and the fly lands right in front of a 40-pounder. And I go, leave it, leave it, don't strip it. And the fish comes up and goes, <gasps> the little fish, eats it, and then blows it right back out because he, he never did anything. There was a big fish coming. It looked like a big fish to me coming right behind that fish. I said, strip it, strip it. He stripped it two or three times. Fish comes up real slow like those backcountry fish do. Real, you know, slow motion bite. Head goes down. He sets the hook. I go, Stanley, as soon as he set the hook, I saw the fish turn sideways. He's a weight. Thing won't hardly clear. And just for the people out there that don't know who, what a weight fish is. Yeah, 70, a fish over 70 right. pounds. I mean, this fish looked much bigger than 70 pounds to me, but. And Stanley is, I love Stanley to death, but, but in these days, he was a nervous wreck during tournaments. I mean, he'd, he'd like prance around the bow and he, oh, I don't know, I don't, you know. He was just always nervous and, and real quick and he goes, I don't think it's a weight. I go, Stanley, it's a weight. Fish is not clearing. He's just waddling around, you know. Fish is shaking his head a little bit here and there. Finally gets him on the reel, but he's not in the backing. We have this fish on maybe 45 seconds. Fish makes one little jump. He's coming back at the boat. I let go of the push pole, jump down, grab the gaff. He's winding like crazy. He's not even tight to the fish yet because the fish is running at us. He finally gets tight on the left side of the bow. He goes, Rob, it's not a weight. He's yelling at me. Rob, it's not a weight. I go to the right side of the bow. As soon as I see the head come out, I reach down there and I gaff the fish. The fish jumps. He goes like this and I flap him down in the deck. He knocks the console right off the deck of my boat, knocks it clean, clean off the off the floor, breaks like four rods, and I go, "He's a weight fish now, motherfucker." <laughs> <laughs> and the fish turned out to be one inch shy of 60, 68, 62 inches. He's like 61, 62 inches, and weighed one hundred five pounds. It was like a pilchard, and this wow. fish was so fat, it had forty girth. Wow. Yeah. And we went on to catch a couple more weights, and we, we won that year. What uh, I know that you've traveled around the world fishing. Yes. You've caught a really big fish, marlin fishing, when you were in the uh, um, Madeira, Madeira mm -hmm. with Carlos's boat. What was that like? How big was that, that, that marlin? That, that fish was 850, 900. 
Right. Um, What's it like being connected to a, a fish of that magnitude? I'll tell you what, just to see a fish of that magnif- magnitude jump and hit the water and, and the amount of water that moves and the power is impressive. But when you're, you're the guy on the rod, we were fishing big, big tackle. You know, 130s. One, 130s. Yeah. We weren't there to catch world records. We were there just to catch giant fish as quickly as possible and let them go. And we had caught some big fish leading up to my, we, we, the trip was over. We'd been there for two months. We'd fished almost every day with clients and Carlos. We'd caught, I don't know, 25 fish or so up to about a thousand pounds, many over 600 and out of that 25 fish. We're, we're putting back to, from Madeira to Gibraltar. So you're traveling. Yeah, we're traveling, going like 10 knots, just putting, autopilot on. Up in the bridge, buddy goes down to take a shower. Rod goes off right before sunset. I look back and there's this giant marlin jumping. I get down in the chair. He comes out with a towel on. Bo Jennings, the mate, he's, he helps me get harnessed in. I, I, we set the drags. 18 pounds on strike, 18, 20 pounds. I went right to full, which is about- Which is 40? It's 55, 55 pounds of drag. I mean, right off the bat, I just went whoop. And you could handle it. Lifted me right up out of the chair. The fish jumped like 14, 15 times. We we noosed him in like 16 minutes and measured the fish. He was, you know, between 850 and 900 pounds. It was a giant fish. And I've never had a pump like that in my form in my life. I've trained thousands of days at the gym. I've never had that much blood in my form from, <laughs> from winding, cranking. from cranking against that that kind of pressure. Let's talk. About, let's talk about your physique. I mean, obviously, you're you got a great heart for training. Um, tell me about why you're so big, and you're you still, I think, uh, lift hard. What is the relationship? I mean, obviously you were a base. We're going to talk about baseball and football, you know, when you're younger. Yeah. How important is it for you to be this strong? You know, I think it's a, it's all part of the equation for me and, and, and my, my job, my profession. I, if I don't feel strong, if I don't feel I don't know what the word is. Your best? I, I feel like I'm not giving my angler his best. I'm not giving myself my best. I'm not giving my, me an opportunity. You know, I've fished tarpon tournaments for 32 years. If I'm going to let myself go and get out of shape where I can't chase down a school of tarpon, I mean, you fished with me. Right. I mean, I can run around those fish, you know, with a push pole. If I couldn't do that, that would piss me off. Right. No, and, I, I get and, and I don't feel like... I have an advantage over other guides if right. I didn't do that. But honestly, as great as as great as it, it feels to be in good shape and have trained for a long time, you know, I'm 51. And for 51 years old, I'm in pretty good shape. And through all the injuries I've had, a lot of people would probably stop going to the gym. You know, I've had 13 or 14 surgeries. And is that as a result of overstressing your joints? Mo- most of it's by doing stuff, not knowing when to say, no. But how many of those injuries yeah. were occurred in the gym lifting heavy weights? I mean, Not, you've bench pressed, what, four, 465 bench pressing? Most I ever benched was 460. 
any any testosterone uh, growth hormones involved, or is this all? I'm I'm 51 now, so testosterone replacement, yes, but minute. You know, I mean, just getting my levels back to where they're supposed to be. Right. Um. But going back to the training, I do it as much for my mental focus as I do my my uh, physical. Right. I just feel better. Right. So tell us tell us about your average day during tarpon season yeah. in May. Don't you wake up at Yeah, you know, up? the COVID thing has totally screwed up my normal system because the gyms now don't open till six o'clock. But previously in years previous, my normal day is, you know, get up four thirty, five o'clock, be at the gym at no later than five thirty, work out for an hour, hour and fifteen minutes, eat breakfast, you know, splash in the boat at seven thirty. And I don't I never have fished hours. I'm not a seven to three guy. Never have been. Some days, well, if the weather's horrible, you know, we may just fish the whole good tide. There's a lot of days when I fish 10, 10, 11, 12 hours. Right. I'm coming in at seven. I mean, it's very rare that I come back to the lower lie and I'm not the last, last guy putting the boat on the trailer. Right. I would say that At some point, the tournament chasing may be waning. Um, do you see that coming down the pipe? I, I can tell you when that's going to happen. And uh, and I think about, you know, as I'm aging, I, I do actually think about that often. The day that, the, the reason I, I get up every day, whether it's tournament or not, and I try my ass off, is at the end of the day, I want to look in a mirror and go, you tried your ass off. For me, I'm not proving, I'm not trying to prove anything to anybody else. Right. The reason I still fish tournaments is to see if I'm still competitive. Not to prove to everybody else that I'm competitive. I want to see if I still got it. If I can still do what I once did. And the day I wake up and I say, I can't do that. That's to myself is the day I quit. What influence has uh, Flip had on you over the years? Uh, you, you've seen the relationship on TV, you yes. and Flip. Yes. It's spectacular. I, I love the shows that you do with Flip. And Jose, too, when he was still around. He was, he was one of my best friends. I miss him still. What kind of uh, inspiration did, did Flip give you, you know, when you were younger? You know, I mean, I, obviously, you got into shooting television shows and hosting shows. Was that a big part of your relationship with flip and seeing what he was doing with walkers, et cetera. I think, um, early in me and flips relationship, I was very young, eight, nine, 10 years old when we started fishing together shortly thereafter, we started hunting some together. I would say flip had a bigger hand in, in the hunting side of my life now than the fishing, though we did fish a lot together. We didn't, I didn't learn a ton of things about fishing from Flip. I'd pick up little nits and pieces. I learned a ton about fishing from Alf Luger. But I learned a ton about the outdoors in general from Flip, especially the hunting side. Walking through the woods with Flip, he would notice things that the general eye doesn't see. You know, this something about this tree, something about this trail. This game trail branches off here. Why? Oh, there's an oak tree there. Oak trees putting down acorns. That's why, you know, he he taught me that all the intricacies of hunting, 
that I now, you know, use on a daily basis when I am hunting. Little things like water flow in the backcountry and things like that we discuss. But I would say more, more, more so than not, it was just time together. We almost learned from each other a lot. You know, once I got a little older, it was, what was the next adventure? We couldn't stand not to know something. Right. And that was the cool part of our relationship was all I, the adventures. I, well, I know that tradition means a lot to you. Tremendously. Especially with tarpon tournaments. And what in particular about tradition are you speaking about when you say the you know, dynamics of tradition? When I, when I learned, when I started guiding, or even before I was guiding, when I was learning the waters, in the Keys especially, it's where the sport was born. Fly fishing for bonefish and tarpon and, and backcountry stuff. That was basically born in the middle part of the Florida Keys. The first tarpon ever recorded on a fly rod ever caught was in Florida Bay on the bay side of Isle Marauder. Right. And growing up reading books and, and reading the tournament stats, you know, in the Miami Herald at, at the end of the tournaments and seeing these names like Billy Knowles and Hank Brown and all these legends, Steve Huff. These guys were heroes to me. And as I started fishing, there, there was a understood etiquette on the water amongst these people, whether, these guys, and whether they, they liked each other or not, because there, there was the Lorelei crew, there was the Bud and Mary's crew, and there was the Holiday Isle crew. You know, everybody had their little cliques, and some of the cliques didn't like the other cliques, but everybody respected one another. That was a unique difference. So does that mean that that clique could fish here? And they wouldn't interfere with where I this click fished over here. And not not so much the there were there were known places that let's say Billy Knowles and Hank Brown would fish on a regular basis. Cecil Keith. When I was eighteen, nineteen years old, I'd get up way before GPS time. I'd get up in the dark, run to Buchanan Bank, get the pocket, holding your finger up on islands in the dark, and nail it. Be there first. Here comes Cecil Keith. And I would ask him if he wanted to be in the pocket. Out of respect. Out of respect. That guy earned his stripes. You know, he, he was 40, 50 years my senior as far as guiding. Is He's got that, more right to be there than I do. And that's something that doesn't happen anymore. Right. So do you feel that because of this, you're allowed to possibly slide into an area where there's somebody that might encroach on your area and it's okay for you to slide in and say, Hey, you know, you're not welcome here. Does that ever happen? Well, I you know, talking about owning spots. I, you, you, know, you know, here's, here's what, as far as that's concerned, there are guides and, and I'm included in this that have evolved Places, especially on the ocean, used to be backcountry spots. You know, everybody had their little niche spots on the banks. Backcountry fishing isn't what it once was, so now it's an ocean game. There are places on the ocean that I started fishing the way I the way they're fished now. When guides would just pull up and, and fish the random edge, they didn't pole this two mile shoreline, and their push pole didn't touch every nook and cranny 
of that of that flat of that bank from one channel to the next and figure out that the fish push here there and there but if a boat gets here he pushes them out and screws it up for everybody you figure that out with a push pole not by running by spots and going oh well, that's where the first boat gets and that's where the second boat gets and punch a number in your gps that's bullshit somebody figured out how to fish that and it wasn't with a gps well, also, too, going back to what you're saying, Steve Huff figured all this out well before anybody else, but he would never take ownership of anything. And speaking to Steve, because we did a podcast talking about yeah. owning spots and, and, and pushing somebody out of, a, of a, out of a spot, and I asked Steve, what's your take on this? And I think that he has got the greatest, most, uh, the greatest foundation of how to do things. Mm -hmm. He said, you only own a spot when you get there first and your push pole hits the bottom. When you leave, that spot is free and clear. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that? I, I, I'm, I'm a believer in that. To a point. To a point. <laughs> to a point. Because here's another example. I pull up to a place I fish every day that I've fished for the last 30 years. That only it's only been the last 20 that other people fish there the way I fish it. How did they figure out how to fish it the way I fish it? By watching me. Is it fair to me that I have to get up now at five o'clock in the morning and go get in a spot that that the other three guys that are trying to get there learned it by watching me? Well, you, also, you know what I'm saying? Also so too so you do no, believe in the intellectual property statement? Because when I grew up, just going back to what I would do when Cecil would come to the pocket. Or if I was at Man of War Bank and Billy Knowles or Hank Brown pulled up, where do you want to get? Right. Where do you want to go, Rob? We'll get behind where do you, you. Where do you want to go? Right. And but that he, doesn't but, happen but, anymore. But I get that. But there are a lot of people that are not Rob Fordyce that haven't, and they too have maybe taken ownership of a spot. And they're not going to, and they take that ownership. But the problem with this, too, is that the younger generation doesn't have the opportunity to learn that spot, what you did, because other people are running them out of there. And is that fair to them to say, you're not allowed to learn this because you this know is what? my spot? They're in tarpon season. There's 12 hours in a day that you can tarpon fish. Sun gets up at 6.30 and it doesn't set till 7.30. I'm probably not going to be sitting on one spot, nor are my comrades right. for a 12 or 13 hour period, right. seven days a week for three months. There's going to be times and tides when those spots are open and it's up to you to not go there and sit where I, where you see me sitting or you see somebody else sitting who, you know, knows it. Go figure it out. Yeah, I get it. Look, I do the same in the lower keys. I know yeah. where Diego likes to fish. I don't go there. You know, I don't fish the bowling alley because you guys are there. I may sneak around in, in certain spots where nobody like, likes to camp on a certain spot. I have total respect for you guys. And I have total respect for the people I know where they like to fish. Yeah. And, and we're always looking over our shoulder. Who's looking <laughs> yeah, at us? Who's going to yell at us? Well, yeah, who's yelling I, at I, us? I wish, I wish more people looked over their shoulder. <laughs> um, what's the future of this game that we're playing? How much better can we be with the evolution of hooks and fly lines and rods and reels? To, in all honesty, I don't think it, at this point, um, I don't think it matters 
how much more advanced the equipment gets. These are the same fish we're fishing every year. And we've taught them more in the last 10 years than they've learned in the last 70 they've been on this place swimming these waters. They're not dumb. They don't forget. They have a short memory, but their memory's getting longer and longer and longer. And they're starting to recognize things. And they, you can see just the behavior. Yeah, It's would a much s- harder game than it used to be, and I don't think it's going to get easier. What did you see this last year when COVID had shut down the Keys? Oh, great question. Mid-March, I actually took Catherine fishing one day. It was a couple slick calm days. I ran through the wheel ditch, you know, south of Alamorada there, and went into a, started running towards the back country and started running into fish in places that I haven't seen them in 30 years. Not a few fish. I mean, hundreds of fish that were happy. They were eating. She was catching fish. And it was like that for two months. Till right about the time the, the, the keys started kind of semi-opening back up. Because it was a really very warm winter. It was warm. They were there and early. we had a really nice weather stretch. But I think more importantly, it just shows you how much boat traffic in general. I don't necessarily mean fishing, tra- you know, not the pressure, but just boat traffic Noise. in general. Mm-hmm. Jet skis, you know, wakeboarders, all of that combined on a weekly basis in normal keys mode totally has changed the behavior of these fish. If it goes away, it's amazing how quick the fish re- go back to doing what they used to do. <coughs> were they easier to get to bite? Oh, they were, every fish you saw would eat. We saw that. Yeah. It was I just crazy. wrote an article for Tail Magazine called the, the COVID Time Machine. Yes. But the COVID was a bad connotation, so they, we just call it the Time Machine. Yeah. That's a great. And great it really was because name. we, when they, when they shut down the keys and all the golf courses, I went to Aspen. Yeah, and I and I was there for about six weeks. I flew in, and um, it was in March. There was not one single private jet at the airport. There were no, there was no one in, on the river, and I told Nikki, "This is how I grew up when I was eight years yeah. old. We could go to the river, and there was nobody there, and it was like I owned every fish." And Nikki and I saw that, and we fished all the time. And then we came into the Keys and got in before they opened the gates somehow. Right. Mid, uh, somehow. May. And I've never gone out of Bow Channel, looked to Key West in that 18-mile stretch, and never have a boat. seen an empty ocean. It was empty. You could go wherever you wanted. Yeah. And unfortunately, thank God, Nikki and I were together, so he had a chance to see what I saw when I grew up in Aspen. Right. But... Even 40 years ago, when I first started doing this, there were boats. I mean, we had a chance to see this world as it was possibly like in the 50s or 60s. Yeah. And the fish, high, happy. No, it's Dustin said he saw uh, out there on the West Coast, outside of as far as you could see, piles and piles and piles of daisy-chaining tarpon. Yeah, not surprised. You saw that used to be around the time I won that last Kill Gold Cup. You could go to a place like First National Bank or Sandy Key Basin or some of the out Oxfoot or Schooner, turn the key off at 7 in the morning and never crank back up until it's time to go home. And you were in fish all day, fighting fish, hooking fish, re-rigging, 
all day. I've done it a couple times in the seaplane basin. Yeah. Where you're surrounded by thousands of targets. I haven't seen that in, in years. A long time. Are you worried about this upcoming season? You know, the, the pressure now that, you know, this whole last year is gone. And right. now we have to reacclimate to boats and traffic and, and, and the number, the numbers game. Yeah. I, I am. But it is what it is. It is what it is. Everybody's yeah. dealing with the same thing, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to do what I do, what I've been doing. And, and hopefully, you know, don't have to deal with too many dumbasses. <laughs> Tell me about your Sea Hunter show. What do you love about telling a story on video? You know, I'll tell you, it's, it's not the, the intrigue is, is not the fishing. I love to go fishing and, and catch the fish. What I've really, and I guess it's a, another step in my life as far as trying to reach a goal and, and, and set, set something up for myself that is not my everyday, is the whole process. You know, I have a vision or I have a guest. I do a lot with vets. I've seen those shows. Yeah, uh, some vets that are some vets that have been through some shit. And that's know. with Project Healing Waters. I deal with, I do a lot with Project Healing Waters, and I meet some amazing people. And I have a kind of a a pre-existing idea of what I want the story to be about. You can never predict the fishing. You can never not predict the weather, but I can kind of predict the story I want to tell, and then we build what happens with the fishing around that story. And it's fun to see how that whole that whole thing evolves, from the fishing aspect to the shooting aspect, to the visuals that I'm trying to to get on camera, and and portraying that to my team, and seeing how good they are at understanding what I'm talking about, and they're really good at it. And then taking that footage and sitting in front of the computer and putting it all together, and telling a story and taking a viewer on an adventure. That whole con that whole equation it just lights me up people love your show you had six million people see it last year yeah no, I'm, I'm very happy with what's going on but again just like the fishing side i'm never satisfied with where is that so we're always trying to do something better i want to bring it back to jose you said that jose was one of your best friends and yes he was you know my father growing up he always used to watch walker's k and i love walker's k i love yes. watching those old tv shows but when i was growing up it was spanish fly yes and i was religious with watching spanish fly his energy everything about him was just amazing but i never knew him i met him one time but you've spent a lot of time with him what was what was jose like Ho jose was one of my by the time that he passed he was one of my top three friends in life i mean we spoke often we did a lot of things together we loved each other like brothers and the reason that I have the Sea Hunter show now is because Jose. Shortly before the, the tragic plane crash, Jose had a 13 year show going, the Spanish fly, it had been going for 13 years. He called me and said, I no longer want to host my show. I want to be behind the camera. I want to, I want my vision to be portrayed on screen and I want you to host it. Really? And he called me while he was loading the plane that day. And uh, we had a meeting the following week to kind of make that public knowledge. And 10 minutes later, a camera guy on, on the shoot called me and said he just crashed his plane and he was no longer with us. Mm. 
I went to his to his uh, funeral and, and spoke at the IGFA. And riding home from that that night, I said, if this guy had enough, you know, thought of me hosting his show and taking his spot in front of the camera, maybe this is something I need to really do. So I don't kick myself in the ass 10 years from now saying I wish I did it. What I got to lose. And that's how it all got started. Wow. So to go back to your original question, Jose was what you saw on camera. I mean, he was a badass. He was a great guy. He was a great angler. We would we would meet at the Miami Boat Show every year. This is midway through is from you know, he was already famous and everything. We'd we made it a, every year we'd meet for lunch and he'd come to the booth wherever I was and we'd walk to this little Cuban joint on, on Collins Avenue. It was our yearly deal. And between the convention center and where we'd try to go eat, some days it was 10 people, some days it was 100 people, from kids to old ladies to men to women, would all stop them and, and want to tell him their fishing story. and Touch Jose. They wanted to, they to just say, him. hey, yeah. you know, I love your show and is who I am. I never saw him once not hear their story. He was just an awesome guy. Yeah. Here's to Jose. Rest in peace. What stories that you want to, are, are out there now that you want to tell? Any, any shows, any locations where you want to go? You know, you I was, hosted that one show in the Amazon. It was a, a record show for ESPN. Trying to catch a world record, record hunters. Bass. Yeah, record trying to hunters. catch a world record peacock. Yeah. Um, was in the Amazon for five weeks. It was grueling. It was fun as hell, but grueling. Did um, you catch any records down there? We caught fish up to 22 and a half pounds. And the um, record, I think, was 23 something at it was, the time, it right? It was just shy of 24. And the record fish actually had a pound and a half peacock in his stomach. He had eaten a pound and a half peacock before they caught it. Non-fair. Yeah. Well, it is what it is. <laughs> it is what it is. Yeah. It you know, what it weighs. You know, it's, it's funny. I tried record fishing one time. And I was with uh, Carl Ball and Andy Thompson. And we killed this tarpon. Uh, I was there. Yeah. I, call, I, I, know, I called the weight. I know. We get back to the dock and we got this dead tarpon in the boat. And Robbie's at the dock. He goes... What's that all about? What'd you get him on? I said, six. He says, what do you need? I said, 82 and a half, which was Stu Apps record right. for 25 years. Yeah. Robbie walks up and down the dock. He looks at the fish with all angles, shakes his head. <laughs> said, you ain't got it, bro. Not, not, not big enough. I said, how big is he? He goes, 82. <laughs> no could, way. Yeah, yeah. He said like 82. Yeah. It oh was it was 80, 82 pounds four ounces on six. We lost we missed by four ounces. Right, and so I saw him at dinner that night. We that were in town at dinner, to right? right? Yeah. We went and waited at not one spot uh, with an IGFA you know certified scale. We went to two spots to make sure because we were only off by four ounces. Sure, I see I see him at dinner. He goes, "What was it?" I said eighty two four. He goes, "Told you." <laughs> <laughs> what did, What did Joe Rod say when he saw that fish? Uh, no, Nathaniel Nathaniel Linville, after he caught a 140, 140 no, no. this last year, he goes, why did you kill such a small fish? 
Oh, yeah. So Joe Rod tells me, you know, I saw Joe Rod that night, and we'd caught this fish. We missed by four ounces. He goes, why would you kill such a small fish? I said, bro, do you know how hard it is to catch an 82-pound tarpon on a six-pound test? Why don't you go try it, fuckhead? <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. Um, anywhere you want to go? I want to go to Australia. Great Barrier Great Reef? Great Barrier Reef. What do you want to catch? There? I'd love, I'd love to chase the the small black marlin, I'm where fly. they're sight fishing them, you know, with the fly rod. Oh, is that X mouth? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I haven't done a, a tremendous amount of investigation because I know I can't go right now, but it's something that's that's on a bucket list trip for me. And I'd love to to go somewhere, and I don't know where that somewhere is at this point, and fish for tarpon that haven't been molested yet. There's got to be a place. What about record fishing? Are you still are you passionate? Are you still passionate about record fishing? You know, I'm I'm not opposed to record fishing. I think it just it not your bag at this time. No, I I think it is. You know, if I got a guy that's fired up about doing it, because I'm fired up about trying new things and and up in the game and trying to be competitive every day. I go fishing anyway. And when you're record fishing, to me, it's just like a tournament day. For sure. I mean, you're trying your ass off. Your leader's perfect. The hook's perfect. You know, and I like that. I love that aspect. Just, I, at this point, I don't have any guys that are fired up about it. Right. I was going to say really the, do it. The team's know. not there yet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Carlos and I did it for a while, and we were, and, and his wife as well, and we were pretty serious about it for for a while. But it's it's still there, but it's not. You know, it's not a driving force behind our days on the water. Right. Anything you want to add to the the conversation? I think. The only thing you haven't asked me, which is something that I would like you to ask me, is, are what are some of my pet peeves with, with the modernized fishing? What are some of the pet peeves <laughs> with their modernized fishing? <laughs> <laughs> we talked about some of them. You know, you got you got your Insta famous guys, you know, that are doing the the social media stuff. They're social media heroes and all that. You go and find fish in Whitewater Bay one day, and no one's around. Then you see somebody catch you the second day, and then they're posting by by noon. And the following day, there's 30 boats where you were by yourself for a day. Right. You know, that kind of shit pisses me off. But uh, I think another thing that's happened, and this goes back to traditions. You know, guys in the old days did their thing. They didn't come back to the dock and tell everybody how great they were and what they did. And there's there's some there's some fish in this sport right now, and when I mean fish, I mean sports, you know, guys that are that are big fish in small ponds. And I don't think you can compare yourself or or, or and you would know this as well as anybody because you've competed in the Olympics. You don't walk into a ski resort and some guy's beating his chest about what a great skier he is. And you have any respect for him unless he's competed. At the highest level. At the level of the game. That, that means something. And there's people in this sport, not just tarpon fishermen, but in fly fishing in general, especially saltwater, that are these insta heroes that have never competed in a tournament and never done shit. But all of a sudden they're writing books about it and beating their chest about how good they are at it. And I got a problem with that. As do many of my friends who are about who are traditional and learn things 
and, and built their name the hard way with a push pole and by earning it, fishing against the best of the best. It's interesting with uh, Steve Huff, towards the end of our podcast with him, I asked him, I said, how would you like to be remembered? And he said, I don't need to be remembered. My kids know who I am. Yeah. That's a, how that's, humble. That is such what a, a great Steve statement. Huff statement. That guy, he, he, he always downplays but he'll be the first one to tell you about traditions and the way you learn things is if you, if you pull, one of his sayings is, if you pull far enough, you're gonna find something. Right. And that's how he learned everything from Miami to Key West. That's how I learned it too. There's another handful of guides that are still guiding that have learned it that way. The rest of them just ride around and see who's fishing where. Who do you respect on the water today? Paul Tejera, Mark Croca. John Donnell, Dustin, Brian Helms, hell of a fisherman. There's a, there's a handful of others. What have they taught you? Not, I mean, cause you're, you're at the pinnacle of success. Has anybody taught you something that, that anything recently that's like, oh my God, that's really good. No. And I and I and I try to learn every day. I used to share a lot of things with half the guys I mentioned there. Because of tournaments, have y'all gotten quiet? I've got I've gotten <laughs> you know, I I've gotten quieter because I, I look in people's boats sometimes, not because I'm trying to see what they're doing just by chance. Or I have a guy fish with somebody and shows up on my boat the next day. I'm like, son of a bitch, that's my shit on his rod. And he fished with somebody else the day before. You know, Joe, Joe Rod was at the, the parking lot at the Lorelei one time, and he was catching all these fish, and he had a new fly. And uh, I went over and said, hey, Joe, I want to see that fly you got, you're throwing, right? He says, okay, come on, I'll, sh I'll show it to you. So he breaks out the fly, it's still attached, you know, to the, to the bite tippet. Right unhooks off the ring shows it and i go wow that's awesome i take my pliers i clip it and fucking take off running <laughs> <laughs> that's classic andy mill right there that's so funny i just had to borrow the fly for a night oh, i gave it back awesome. to him that's awesome what would you what would you tell a young kid who's aspiring to be a florida keys fishing guide i would stay out of my fishing hole no you know what you know here's the deal and, and this is something that i learned young in my career was, you know, another boat never got bigger than this, in my view. On the horizon. On the horizon. I learned things the old-fashioned way by polling, not by running around and looking at my GPS and marking spots. I learned it the old way. And whenever somebody would pull in or I thought they were attempting to, to pull, let's say we're both pulling down a lake, this guy who's obviously a veteran to me was trying to get somewhere I'd give way, you know, and if you, you start treating what you think to be veteran guides on the water that way, you're going to find that you're going to run into them at the dock eventually, and they're going to talk to you and they're not going to yell at you. They're going to talk to you and then you're going to create a friendship. And the next thing you know, they're going to put their arm around you one day and go, Hey, you remember, I saw you fishing there the other day. If you fish on the other tide, you may see a few more fish. They're going to start sharing things with you. Right. And that's what happened with me, and that's what I do now with so, the guys that deserve it. Right. 
So what's going to happen next year when you see Nikki and I in the bowling alley before you get there? <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Have at it. There's three spots there. Robbie, I love you. Hey, man. This is a lot of fun. You've done so much in the sport. I've respected you for forever. We've been good friends. We've won tournaments together. And and I I can't thank you enough. Thank you for having me. Really. Thanks for coming on, Robbie. Hey, it's a yeah. pleasure. Pleasure. Always. Thank you. We gotta go let's kill go an elk at some point. We'll do that and let's go fishing soon. We love that. All right, guys. Thank you so Thanks. much. Regardless of all the accolades that are used or could be used to represent Rob Fordyce, they would be accurate. As you just heard, he's dedicated his life to be the best tarpon guide in the world. And at this point in time, all of his victories verify he's that guy. Being around Rob and fishing against him made us all better. We used to agree that if we ever fished a tournament together, we'd do okay. And I'm honored to say, my last tournament victory was with Rob by my side, calling the shots. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do us a huge favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.